Leviticus 16, starting at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. This shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Down to verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put, on, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Something like a little Leviticus to start things off. If this is your first time here, please stay. Just, just We're going to get there. It's going to make sense, right? When we bring the goats out later, it'll all just kind of tie together. Um, yeah. If, you, if you're not familiar with the story of Scripture, even if you are, and Leviticus doesn't mean a whole lot, like, just think about the name Leviticus, and like, that's kind of what the book is. It, just, it sounds like a Leviticus. It sounds like a really tough one. But hopefully... Uh, we'll trust the Lord to make sense of, of his own word um, this morning. So I, I do think we have another birthday in the house, 
right? Art, isn't it your birthday today? I, I cannot sing, and I, so I will not lead us in singing, but happy birthday to you as well. Um, always a good day to be in church on your birthday. So, uh, yeah, Pastor Scott, thanks for reading that. Morgan and I were in the back like, so glad we just had Pastor Scott read that one, because that's, that's a doozy, but uh, atonement is what we're talking about today. That's why I picked that. The Day of Atonement felt like an appropriate place to start. Grammar of Faith has been our series where we're just talking about, um, yeah, some key words in our faith following Jesus. We've talked about sin. We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about the incarnation last week, Pastor Rich. We've talked about the image of God. Today is the atonement, and what in the world does that mean? Um, that's what we're going to get into, but we've been following this this trend of not just knowing what these words mean, but then how they actually function in our lives. Go to that next slide, Brian. This is kind of our little, uh, our, our flow throughout this series that we've said orthodoxy, right belief. It's really important to understand and have the right belief and the right truth and understand what these terms mean. But it's not just enough to know these things, then there actually ought to be this, this change that happens inside of us so that we actually desire the right things, orthopathy, that we would want to do the right things. We would want to do what God wants. And then that actually leads to right action, orthopraxy. That actually impacts the way that we live. And so we're going to try to follow that this morning. What in the world is atonement? The word atone itself, the Hebrew word for that means to cover, specifically with bitumen, which makes sense, of course. Uh, I had to look up what that meant. Asphalt, mortar, or used for this road resurfacing. That's what the original word for atone actually means, to cover to repave a road. Big, uh, regular practice here in New Jersey when my wife and I moved up from Florida almost 11 years ago now. Like, the farther we got north, the worse the roads got. We noticed this pattern. And when we get to New Jersey, like, it's just, I mean, we love Jersey, but the roads are terrible, terrible. We had, um, a couple, number of years ago, we had a, a several hundred dollar fix in one of our cars because an oxygen sensor had knocked loose. And it, the part itself was like 10 bucks. Uh, somewhere down in the engine, but the, the several hundred was to just get to it. And since then, every time we hit like a really rough patch of road, it's like, well, that probably knocked another oxygen sensor loose there. That's why that happens. Like, that's just the roads we have in New Jersey. And when a nice po uh, road gets repaved and gets, gets covered over, like they've been doing in our neighborhood this summer, it's just, it's great. It's great. That's the sense of a tone, this repaving of a road. Um, that's a helpful picture, but let's look at some maybe more scholarly definitions here. Um, I, I read this, most of this book leading up to this called The Atonement, an Introduction by Jeremy Treat, uh, as in the trick or treat uh, spelling. Really, really good book. I would, uh, and it's a short one too, and it's very accessible. Um, it did not feel like a seminary class, but it's really, really well done. So um, The Atonement, Jeremy Treat would, would highly recommend that. I'm gonna, most of the stuff I'm going to pull today is from that. He says this about the doctrine of atonement. It's the church's attempt to understand the glory of Christ crucified in a way that cultivates worship and catalyzes discipleship. Our attempt to understand the glory of Christ crucified, understand, there's the orthodoxy, that cultivates worship, that, that uh, brings about and warrants a response of heart, orthopathy, and then catalyzes discipleship, that it impacts the way we go in the world. There's the orthopraxy. Later on, he quotes John, uh, it's a typo, there should be John Stott. I, uh, maybe I was just thinking about Scott's birthday, and I put that in there. But John Stott, maybe one of the, the foremost uh, theologians on the atonement, he says this, In and through Christ crucified, God substituted himself for us and bore our sins, dying in our place the death we deserve to die in order that we might be restored to his favor 
and adopted into his family. That definition there is really what I'm going to try to unpack for the rest of the morning of what all that entails. It really is a, a multi-dimensional accomplishment. It's not just a one kind of thing, but it, it impacts, the ripple effects are far spreading. It's a multi-dimensional accomplishment within the story that begins in the garden and ends in a restored humanity, ends in a restored kingdom. The death of Christ is a multi-dimensional accomplishment. That's a word that, that Treat just kept using over and over again. Within the story, it begins in the garden, culminates in the kingdom. So let's look at a story. And it really is going to be helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you. Um, it's just, it's going to be so much easier. So if you have a physical Bible, pull that out. If you're uh, digital, go with that. If you need a Bible, there's one, there should be some on the, um, in, under the chairs in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, like literally, please pull out a Bible. Even if you're not familiar with it, I got page numbers for you. I'm going to tell you where to turn. Um, I will hope to make this as simple as possible. We're going uh, to see a lot of the themes and the grammar of faith words we've already talked about throughout today. This kind of culminates all of it. Um, the atonement is kind of like a summary of our whole faith. And so if I'm going to finish by the time some of you have to go to work tomorrow, we, we need to get rolling. So Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we're going to start at the beginning. You're laughing, buddy. <laughs> Buckle up. Uh, so here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I said I had page numbers. This is actually page one. Um, well, sometimes, you know, it's like the intro is page, you know, whatever. Actually, page one. That wasn't trying to be a slight. I wanted to see what the page was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see the Trinity. We see the Trinity that I, I believe Pastor Scott talked about this a couple weeks ago. We see God ready, waiting to create. We see the Spirit of God there hovering over the face of the waters. We saw this kind of reenacted even uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, the Son. We see the Trinity from the very, very beginning, even before the beginning. We see God the Father, Son, and Spirit ready to create. Same chapter. Look down at 1, 26 and 27. This is at the end of the, of the creation account, the end of the creation poem here. Then God said, let us, another reference to the Trinity, let us make man in our image. Jalen talked about this a few weeks ago, the image of God. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over, every, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, that he created them. He created us to represent him in the world. He created us to, to live life as if he were here physically present. What would God be doing? He created people to do that. The kingdom of God is another theme that runs throughout Scripture, and one way we could talk about the kingdom of God is it's God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's rulership, God's kingship, God's authority through his people, through us, those made in his image, over God's place, over the earth that he created for us to live in. Problem is, we broke it. A couple chapters later, we broke it. Sin, sin broke this, and yet atonement is what restores it. Atonement is what puts it back together. But in order for there to be um, a solution, like atonement, uh, that assumes that there's a problem, which is sin. We'll talk a lot about that in a minute, which then presupposes an original purpose, and that's the doctrine of creation. That's why I even start us here. Like, this is where it started. 
the middle is a bunch of craziness, and the end is going to restore us back to this sense where God rules through his people in his place when heaven actually comes back to meet earth. So the, the solution atonement, there has to be a problem in order for there to be a solution. And if there was a problem, there was something original that was good that we started with. And atonement, another way to think about it that Treat talks about in this book is it's becoming at one with God. Atonement, A-T-O-N-E, to atone, to become at one with God, to be brought back together with God. That was the original purpose, to be, to be one with God, that he would dwell with his people, that he would be with us. And again, because we, we jacked it up, we can no longer be at one until the atonement. Make sense so far? Great. Genesis 3, turn the page. Just keep laughing, it's fine. Uh, Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Let's look at the fall, right? If that's creation, if that's kind of act one of history, here's act two, the fall, the need for atonement. This is what happens. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and the tree was desired to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I won't dive too deep into this. Jalen did that a couple weeks ago and did a fantastic job. Notice the need for and even the, the movement towards atonement immediately after they sinned. They sew these fig leaves together to cover themselves. From the jump, as soon as sin enters the world, there's this sense of, i got to fix this. Somehow this is a problem. I need to cover myself. We've got we've to right this wrong. If only it were that easy. One of the original words for sin in the Bible is a, is a Greek word um, that means to miss the mark. It's an archery term, right? Which when you are, are you know, just casually shooting archery in your spare time, um, or darts maybe is a little more realistic. Uh, what's the goal in archery? To hit what? The bullseye, right? To hit the bullseye. Um, let's say you hit the, the ring right outside the bullseye. Uh, did, you, did you hit the mark or miss the mark? You missed it, right? Let's say your arrow, like mine probably would, goes into the woods next to the target. Did you hit the mark or miss the mark? It doesn't matter how close you get. The goal is still miss. That's a, a super low-level parallel of what sin is, that we have missed the mark, namely that we have missed representing God and his original intent. I'm just going to read from this. He just says so good here. Um, the mark, God's intended, intended purpose for humanity, is to know him and represent his loving rule throughout the earth. Sin, therefore, is not merely a mistake or a moral flaw. It's a personal rejection of God as king and a, relinquish, a relinquishing of the responsibility that humanity was given. In the rejection of God as king, it always comes with the attempt to replace him with something else on the throne namely us, that we would replace God and think, you know what, I could do it better, God. I think I know better. Now, maybe we would never voice that, but that's what Adam and Eve were saying. They were saying, yeah, you know what, God doesn't really know what's up. Now, they had some help getting there from the serpent, right? Again, I won't go too much into that. But they have missed the mark, and so have we. So have we. Jump 
to the book of Isaiah. I'm skipping a slide there, Brian. Isaiah, this is page 571, if you've got one of the Bibles from under the seat, or if you have a crossway ESV. Page 571, Isaiah 6, another sense of just the weight of sin. It's also on the screens, Isaiah 6, starting in 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is uh, a few thousand years later, 700 or so before Jesus comes on the scene, uh, I, this is Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, like the hem of his pants, just that bottom part, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these are some wild creatures, each had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew, kids, possible Halloween costume for you there. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. There's an earthquake. Things are going nuts. The house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He is Isaiah, and he's like a man of God here. Like he's, he's, he's one that God is going to use to represent him. And he has this recognition that before this holiness, before this indescribable awesomeness and glory, he says, I am lost. I'm a sinner. And not just, he's not just saying that about himself, but he, he recognizes that sin is more than just inside of his own heart. It's, it surrounds him in the community. And he's not pointing fingers elsewhere. Like he's, he's identifying himself with the brokenness of the people around him. It's not just him, but it's, whole com- it's his whole community. And really, it's his whole humanity. Sin not just pollutes the soul, it pollutes the land. It pollutes all of creation. And that there's, so now there's this rift between us and God. And I think, I've never had an experience like this in the same way that Isaiah did, but I think, I think we get too far away from realizations like this, that we lose this sense that sin has consequences. We lose the sense of how holy God is. We live in a very siloed society, a siloed world. We all have these addictions and secrets and stuff that I can just keep over here in the dark and there's not really any consequences. But that's not the reality of what our sin actually looks like before God and what our response ought to be. Like the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, which when you think about God creating, he's the source of life, the source of light, the source of everything good, and he gives us breath in our lungs and then we take that very breath to live life a different way that doesn't line up with what he says, whether that's an act of shaking our fists or just kind of like, I don't really know, God, I'm, you know, it won't be that bad if I take a bite of that tree. It's not really that. Like doing that with the very breath that God gives us, that's a big deal, right? Imagine if whatever, whatever logo or brand that you, uh, that you wear for your job, right, if you were to wear that and walk around and like do things not according to the way that your boss says you should, right? What happens? You get fired, right? Like, we carry that logo, that brand on us, the image of God, and we do things that don't reflect him, right? And, we, and the, the punishment is a lot worse than getting fired. I love the way that, that author, speaker, hip-hop artist Jason Petty, he goes by the name Propaganda, says it. He says, give God his breath back. You owe him. Right? When we use the breath that God gives us to say, nah, I'll do it my own way, he, he, we deserve, he deserves to have his breath back. This is not a very, very good thing. So here's a list of, because of sin against God, people are blank, that Jeremy Treat puts in in this book here. Just take a moment to scan that and just even recognize which one of those do you maybe most resonate with. 
not all of these are necessarily the direct result of sin, physically ill, um, as one example, but all of these are a result nonetheless of sin and brokenness in the world. Just take a moment to scan those, and which one does your heart even most resonate with as you think of your sin before God? not a very pretty list. Um, I think, I think uh, covered in shame is one for me for sure. Spiritually indebted, those are two that stick out to me that I just, in my own story, in my own life, I have most felt the weight of. And so how do we fix this problem? In many ways, this is the question that all of humanity, regardless of religion, worldview, race, creed, anything, is trying to answer. How do we fix this? How do we actually cover and atone for this whole mess? What do we do about it? This is the problem that the rest of the Bible seeks to answer. This is the problem that anything, right? No one would, I would say, no one would deny that something is wrong. The question is how to fix it. At the core, we could say we're all just looking for a way to be at one with God. That's what we're trying to do. I think it can be helpful to look at other ancient civilizations and to consider some of the other solutions and how the Bible speaks into and even against those. So let's, let's just imagine uh, way back when, thousands of years ago, the earliest, the earliest of civilizations um, in the earth, not a part of God's people, not a part of, not following the God Yahweh, but just other, other idols, other gods, lowercase g out there. How might they have gone about this? Well, let's just say you've got, you could even imagine a caveman or woman if you want, just for kicks, right? Maybe they're dressed, maybe it's Halloween in this scenario, and they're dressed up as a caveman or woman. And they, as they're living their life, they recognize that some of the, the wildlife and the vegetation and the plants around them provide for them food right outside their, right outside their dwelling. And they recognize this plant um, at certain periods throughout the year produces edible food. Maybe they've learned from neighbor caveman that don't eat certain things because that doesn't end well, but they recognize, hey, we're dependent on this crop. Um, the, the, let's say they also hunt and they're dependent on trying to catch various animals who seem to have this kind of wild nature about themselves. And sometimes they can catch them and sometimes they can't, but they're, they're, there's this dependence on the things around them. And they recognize that this plant is also in, its, in, in a way dependent on other external forces, like this big giant ball of fire that moves across the sky. And these, these, these drops of water that sometimes come down from the sky, it helps nourish this plant. And if there's too much of one of those, the plant doesn't, it just, yeah, the plant is going to die. It's going to get scorched because there's too much of the big fireball. There's, it's going to uh, get overwhelmed because of too much water. And so in their dependence for life upon this plant, the plant is dependent upon the other forces that are out there. And they're realizing, like, we don't have much control over this. But somehow it would be great if we did. Like, maybe, maybe somehow we could, um, we could manipulate those forces to give us uh, the light when we need it and to give us the water when we need it. Maybe somehow we could manipulate the forces to make the wildlife calm down so that we could shoot it with an arrow and we could eat, but we're just not really in that. We don't have that much power. We don't have that much control. And over time, as more and more people kind of come to this understanding, they begin to, to 
they begin to have this idea of, oh, okay, if, if maybe, maybe there's these forces that we could somehow get on our side, how could we do that? Well, we like to eat the food of this crop, or we like to eat the, the food from this animal. Like, what if we left some just kind of lying around for this force that sends down the rain or, or the light? Uh, maybe they would enjoy it. Uh, so why don't we, you know, the forces have got to be up there somewhere, so let's kind of build up this stack of rocks. What should we call it? Uh, how about an altar? Um, and, and let's leave some of this animal there, and maybe the, that force or that God would enjoy some of what we enjoy. Okay, great. And so then they do that. And let's say that, I don't know, the next week there's like a big rainstorm and there's a whole bunch more crops that pop up. Like, oh, that worked. That must have made them happy. So let's keep doing that. And over time, this rhythm kind of develops where people are, are offering uh, a, a bit of what's theirs to these forces or to these gods to try to keep them happy. And so let's say that the season is just really good. Crops are booming. Um, it, it's just, you know, it's some kind of ancient garden state, if you will, and things are just flowing up. And they're like, okay, this is great. We got enough to save. We're going to put some away. And then the next uh, crop year comes around, and they think, oh, man, what if, like, what if the gods want more stuff? What if, what if, like, they gave us a ton last year. If we just give them the same offering, like, maybe they'll think we're ungrateful. I don't want them to think that because we need them to send rain and light, and so we got to give them a little bit more. And let's say that they give them more, and it's a bad year. There's just not a whole ton of crops. There's not a, there's not a ton of wildlife running around, and, and they're struggling. Well, clearly we didn't give enough to them. Clearly they're upset with us. Clearly that we, we've got some making up to do. Clearly we've got to atone in some way for uh, our gap, and somehow we've made these gods mad and angry with us, so we better give more. And so they give more. Maybe they give some crops and an animal, and man, the next year it's not enough. It's just another bad year. It's another drought year. Ah, clearly, okay, maybe it's because you guys were, were fighting and arguing too much, and this happened, like, there's so many problems. Like, how do we know when's enough enough? Well, we've got to somehow prove our devotion. Like, we, we, we trust these gods. We've got to, you know, so what's more valuable than the very things that we, that we consume? Maybe it's, maybe it's our own bodies. And so they would begin to even spill their own blood. Now this isn't just far-fetched anymore. This is actually real stuff that would happen. Prophets of one of the, one of the false gods and idols that God's people most wrestled with back in the day, Baal or Baal, it was a, a custom for them to slash their arms, to slash their bodies and spill their own blood as a way to say, we're devoted to you. See, see how grateful we are? See how much we trust you? See how much we're willing to offer and sacrifice so that you'll give us what we need? We need some rain. But then again, there's just, you know, a couple of years go by, it's good, and then a couple more years, and it's not a very good harvest. And so now what? Well, what's worth even more than our own blood and our own bodies, our, our very lives? Like, who can... How can we offer a life? Well, I guess somebody needs to die. And this is where the followers of the ancient god Molech used to offer their own children as a sacrifice, as a way to say, don't you see how devoted we are? Don't you see how much we trust you? Isn't this enough? Haven't, yes, we've done some bad things, but isn't, isn't a sacrifice of a life enough to, to cover that, to atone for that? How much is enough going to be enough? And we do this. We live this way, thinking, how much is going to be enough to get God on my side? How much is going to be enough to get the things I really want and need in life? When is, when, what else do I have to, what else do I have to do? 
to get ahead, to get what I'm actually looking for. Maybe we would never actually in this day and age put a child on an altar and physically kill them, but are there ways in which we offer our children in the pursuit of a career, in the pursuit of something else we think is going to give us life? Maybe we wouldn't actually go and kill or spill blood, but do we, do we, do we kill people's souls with our words, the way we speak and treat one another? This is what we do. How much is enough to keep offering and sacrificing when this is what happens because of sin? And it's into this that we, ought to, that we have to think about how Yahweh, the God of the Bible, addresses this topic and addresses the need for atonement because it's wildly different than any of that, wildly different than any other civilization out there. Go back to Genesis 3, page 2. Genesis 3, verse 8. I don't actually think I gave this one to you, Brian, so we'll trust the people to look at it. Uh, nope, sorry. Uh, Genesis 3, I did, I did give you this one. Verse 21. Genesis 3, 21, page 3. Sorry. Genesis 3, 21. Look at what God actually does for Adam and Eve. They sowed fig leaves for themselves. This is after the end. If you said, hey, here's the, here's the consequence. You've got to leave. You've got to go out of the garden. And he says... The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where do you think God got that? From the Burlington Coat Factory down near where the men's retreat's going to be? Like, no, he, this is, this is the first sacrifice. Burlington, it is of Coat Factory fame. I've, I've been down there. I mean, there's a giant factory. You guys will probably see it going by. No, like God didn't pull coats out of his closet. He made, this was a sacrifice. This was the first sacrifice to make skins, and he covered them. He clothed them from the jump. God is willing to provide what is needed so that they can know it's enough. Let's keep going. Genesis 22. Turn the page. Genesis 22 to page 16 if you're in the ESV Bibles. Abraham. God comes to a man named Abraham at some point and says, hey, I want you to, I want you to leave your father's house which was a call actually for Abraham to leave all of his father's gods, little g. They would have had probably all these idols and statues that they would have worshipped and sacrificed in some way for in order to, to get from these gods what they thought they needed. And God said, Abraham, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to land that I'm going to show you and I'm going to make you a family of many, of many nations. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And there's a funny ancient Hebrew proverb that says, uh, Abraham, you know, it's possible maybe that Abraham went into his, his main room of his house and took an axe and just smashed all of his father's idols, all the little statues, except for one, and then put the axe in the hands of that little one as if like, hey, look what happened here. This one just went off on all the other ones. And the next morning, his dad was like, oh my gosh, what did you, what happened here? And Abraham's like, well, clearly, look, this one, you know, just went after it. And, and Abraham's father's like, no, 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 there's no way. Like, I made these myself. They're just stone and wood, and they're not, they're lifeless. And Abraham's like, then why do we worship them? Mic drop, and then he heads out. Problem was, he didn't have a, any kids of his own, and he and his wife were very old. Finally, God gives them a son, Isaac, and then he goes and he asks him to do something crazy, to offer his son, Isaac, on an altar, to us, it sounds crazy. Back then, if you think about all the things I just talked about, the context, like, this wasn't crazy. This was very normal. Abraham probably was just a little shocked, like, wait, I didn't think you were one of those gods. What's up? So when they came to the place, 20, Genesis 22, 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there 
and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, thorn, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This would have been radical in that day and age for them to hear a story like this. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The lamb dies instead. The ram dies instead. God is the one who provides what is enough. He's the one that provides atonement to pay for the sacrifice. We fast forward even further. Exodus 12, page 53. Exodus 12. Many more years go by. God's people end up in slavery in Egypt. It's time for God to bring them out of that. We have Moses comes on the scene as, a, as a, the leader of God's people. He goes to Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, and says, hey, let God's people go. Pharaoh's like, I don't know who God is. I'm God. And so God sends these plagues, these supernatural things, to display his glory to Pharaoh. And then we get to the last plague and the Passover, which became one of, one of the most significant things in all of Hebrew history and in all of Christian history, where God says, hey, um, every, let me see how I have it written here. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to read it from the Jesus Storybook Bible because I love the way that uh, the author puts it here. This is what the 10th plague was. God had said to, to Moses, the oldest boy in each family of Egypt must die, but my people will be safe. This is where the, the destroyer is what the, the Bible says. The Spirit of God is going to come over the land and is going to kill the firstborn in every family, except God told his people to take their best lamb to kill it and put some of its blood on their front doors. And when God passes over your house, Moses explained, I love this, God will see the blood and know that the lamb died instead of you. That the lamb died instead of you. That there is a swap. There's a substitution. That the lamb died instead of you. The destroyer would come and see, nope, there's already been a death there. There's already been atonement. Something has been, a price has been paid. And so that brings us back to Leviticus, the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, page 95. No one's laughing now as we're going book by book through this thing here. Leviticus 16. Uh, where do I want to highlight? Brian, I'm just going to have to trust you to stick with me. Um, Okay, he mentioned two goats. Pastor Scott mentioned two goats. It's really too bad we're not having like one of those giant barbecues with the, the thing out back today. You know, that would, be, that would be great. Some of you haven't been to that are like, what? Please stay, please stay. Uh, verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering. Right, then he, verse 8, he casts lots, he, he rolls some dice. One for the Lord, one for Azazel. And then go down, yeah, verse 20. 
when he's made atoning for the holy place, right? Blood had been spilled. He killed a, a bull, I believe it was, to, to even just make the place clean so that the high priest could even go in there. He shall present the live goat. Verse 21, Leviticus 16, 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people, all the sin, all their transgressions, all their sins. Confess it is just agreeing with God. Yes, I did this. We did this. Isaiah echoes this. We have a, a lift where I'm an unclean man and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And verse 21, keep going. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is where we get the term the scapegoat, right? The scapegoat, the one who gets blamed for something. Every, every big scandal has got to have a scapegoat. If you're following Michigan football right now and all the crazy scandal that's going on there, if you're not, that's okay. But if you are, like somebody's going to be the scapegoat. Somebody's going to get sent out into exile in the wilderness and say, yep, it's that guy's fault. The rest of us knew nothing about trying to, to illegally find out other teams' plays. Like, it's that guy's fault. He's the scapegoat. This is where it comes from. This is where it comes from. God said, hey, take this goat and put all of your sins on it and then send it away that goat will pay for it. There's also been another one that already died. Then we get to Leviticus 17. Verse 11. This one is huge. Because there's, oftentimes there's kind of like, why, what's the blood and life and why? Like, where does that come from? This is, what, this is what the Lord says in Leviticus 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood represents the life given. And the blood of a sacrifice is not blood inside of a living body. Rather, it's blood that has been spilled to represent something that has died. This is where blood spill comes into play. This is where those other civilizations, well, maybe we spill some blood and that'll, that'll please the God. That'll get them off our back. It's blood that's shed as part of a sacrificial death. That's what covers Sin. It's a way of saying God's getting part of his breath back because someone's dying. In this case, it's animals. Numbers 33. Again, we said that blood doesn't just pollute the soul, it pollutes the land. I'm sorry, Numbers 35, verse 33, page 144. You're still tracking in those Bibles. Numbers 35, verse 33, 34. This is what? The Lord says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes. Specifically, he's talking about murder here. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that's shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Basically, this is where we get some of the ideas or principles of life for a life, if you've heard that phrase before. If somebody kills someone else, blood's been spilt. We can't atone for that except for the one who did the killing. Their blood's got to be shed. Wild stuff if you start to think about Jesus as we go through all of this. No atonement can be made for the land, for the blood, for Jesus' blood that's shed, except by the blood of those who shed it. And yet it was Jesus' own blood. I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is, this, is, this is beautiful. And yet here's the problem with all of these animal sacrifices and stuff. Hebrews, jumping way ahead. Now you're like, maybe we'll get through this, actually. Hebrews, towards the back, page 1006, if you're in the the ESV one, Hebrews chapter 9. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, this is what the author of Hebrews said, which is kind of a take on everything we just talked about. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Somebody's blood has to be shed. And yet, if you're in that, just look right over to Hebrews 10, 4. Next column over. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Dang. What in the world? I thought this was enough, God. I thought all the animal sacrifices, like, it's all for nothing. What in the world? This is where we, this is where we come to. Is it ever going to be enough? So we've seen the Trinity. We've seen the image of God. We've seen sin. Now we're going to come to the incarnation that Pastor Rich talked about last week that God would then choose to send himself, to send his own son. This work of atonement here is a, a Trinitarian work. It is not this sense of God the Father was really, really angry and upset, and God the Son was like, just cool it, Dad, I'll go. I'll take care of it. Just relax. Go cool off, and you can just be mad at me. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just fix it. This was not the case. If we don't see God sending his own son as a triune act, we will end up pitting father against son, as if either the son had to pacify an angry deity or the father had to sacrifice an unwilling son. This is not what it is. God comes and he offers what he values most, meaning his own life, his own son. And so if the, the, the ancient Hebrew word for atone is to cover, to cover, to cover, look at John 1.29. Jesus comes on the scene, God in the flesh, And he's walking near the sea of uh, the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing. And this is what he says. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Here's an animal who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus doesn't come to just cover over it. This isn't just like, this isn't just like a quick little repaving, right? I've driven on some of those roads, and it's like, you just did a bad job. You just covered over. It's just a little bit of a smoother pothole, but it's still there. No, it says he comes to take away the sins, to completely remove them. It's not just like sin, animal sacrifice to cover over it. More sin, oh, we got to do more. More sin, no, he comes to totally wipe it away, completely uproot and, and demolish the entire road to put down a fresh, smooth, perfectly paved road. This is what Jesus does. And so we, we don't have to wonder whether it's enough because God provided the sacrifice that was enough. Hebrews, back to Hebrews 10, chapter 12. I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, page 144. Uh, nope, 1006, sorry. So many numbers. So many numbers. Don't turn to the book of numbers. I don't mean that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's, he's the one that did it, and it was enough. The fact that he came back to life and resurrected is a way to say that the, the check cleared, payment, there's enough, sufficient funds. Sufficient funds. So, Pastor Scott, happy birthday indeed. I do 
appreciate our friendship, appreciate your shepherding in my own life, appreciate fantasy football trades. So I do honor you. Happy birthday. One way I want to honor Pastor Scott is by ruining a movie for you all. See, see, how, I, see how I did that? Uh, I, I do actually wonder if, mo- if many of you have seen this movie. Uh, it's a Denzel Washington movie uh, that I do think just has a beautiful picture of this. I, I so want, I'm so curious to know all the movies that are coming to mind as you try to think, which Denza, that is it, thank you, Man on Fire, Christian knows what we're talking about, Man on Fire, how many of you have seen Man on Fire, I just want to know how much content, okay, not as many as I thought, well, well, sorry, it is going to ruin, this is going to be ruined for you, Man on Fire, so Denzel Washington, super watered down version, is a, is a bodyguard of sorts, and he's hired out by uh, a U.S. ambassador living in a different country to, to watch over their daughter. Uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight-year-old little girl, and there's a, just a beautiful, tender relationship that, that comes between Denzel and this little girl. Um, and she, he, he's a hardened uh, war veteran or, or uh, detective, something like that. He's, just, he's seen the worst of the worst, and just over time, she just, she just wears down on him and just softens him into a teddy bear. It's a beautiful film. Um, and yet there is one point where she is kidnapped by uh, kind of cartel drug leaders in the, the nation where they're serving. Some of these details I might be, be getting mixed, mixed up, but that's not important. And so at, finally, they're trying to get the girl back, and they're in communication and all this stuff, and, and there's a demand for a ransom. There's a demand for a, 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 a sacrifice. There's a demand for payment in order to cover what has been done, what wrong has been done, at least in the, the cartel lord's eyes. And so Denzel Washington's character agrees to swap places, to be a, a substitute. And so at the, at, the, at the end of the movie, they meet at this bridge, right, which we could almost imagine. Uh, a car drives up on one side with a little girl, and, and Denzel Washington drives up on the other side. And we could almost imagine this, like God on one side, mankind and on the other and there's this great chasm that separates us because he is holy 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 and we are people of unclean lips and there is nothing that we could do to bridge that gap there will never be enough that we could sacrifice and offer never be enough to 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 bridge that gap and so what does god do he says i'm going to build a bridge going the other way to them and i'm going to and it is sufficient the cross on which jesus dies in our place where he literally gives God, his own breath back in our place to die for our sins. That's the sufficient sacrifice. We just read that. And so now there's this bridge. And so the little girl gets out of the car. And on the other side, Denzel gets out of the car and start to walk across the bridge. And there's this beautiful little scene at the top of the bridge. I don't think the little girl has any idea what's going on. She's just so excited to see her mom. It's not until she gets over to the other side that she realizes what's happening. But there's this beautiful, tender moment on top of the bridge And then Denzel finishes the journey and goes across, and he takes her place. There's a substitution that happens. If he had not gone into captivity and ultimately to his own death for this little girl, then she would have. She would have remained. That's what Jesus does for us. And yet, it's not just, like, atonement isn't just a nice little sacrifice that Jesus did for us. Like, it implies that there is a demand. There is a cost. There is something that has to be paid. And without this, we've got no shot at getting across that bridge. It's not just a nice thing that Jesus does for us, but it's something that had to be done instead of us. That's the key. 
something that had to be done instead of us. And it had to be Jesus, and he had to be perfect. He had to be without sin. Because if he would have had his own sin to pay for, his own sin that was worth blood being spilt for, his own sin that giving up his breath would have paid for, then he couldn't have paid for ours. This is one way to think about this. Some of the athletes that I work on campus with ministry called Athletes in Action uh, at Rutgers, and um, most athletes, most sports, they, you know, if they miss a practice or they show up late or whatever, they break some type of team rule, they have, a, uh, they have some sort of punishment system. And one of the teams that we work with, they, they call it a strike system. And if they get a strike, um, they don't actually get a physical punishment because that wouldn't help them achieve their goals. Um, most of the time, they have to clean something. They have to show up like really, really early in the morning and vacuum all the carpets in the building or clean the windows or something like that. And if they keep doing that, like eventually everybody in their position has to do it and then the, like, everybody in their grade has to do it and then everybody on the whole team has to show up and do it because this one person just keeps getting all these strikes. Okay, so uh, let's say that somebody has a strike and... Uh, and there's two of their teammates that are like, hey, I'll, I'll vacuum instead of him. I'll substitute myself. And out of the two people willing to substitute, uh, one of them has three strikes and one of them has no strikes. Which one of those people can actually substitute themselves for their teammate? It's got to be the one with no strikes. Because if the one with three strikes vacuums the carpet, like, are they vacuuming for themselves or are they vacuuming for their teammate? Well, I don't know. There's, there's so much penalty that has to be paid. But for the one who has no strikes, who doesn't have, hasn't done anything wrong, who hasn't broken the team rules, they can vacuum the carpet because they don't have any of their own carpets that have to be vacuumed. Jesus didn't have any of his own sin that had to be paid for, paid for, and so he could pay for us. His blood wasn't spilled for himself. It could be spilled for us. If the wages of sin is death, what we earn when we sin, if that's death, then what did Jesus earn by never sinning? Life. And so he righteously actually deserved to come back to life and leave our sins in the grave. And so now we come to Revelation. Like finally, whew. Revelation chapter five, verse six, page 1031. Revelation five, six. What do we see at the end of all things, this vision that the Apostle John gets? He's looking at the throne of God, and he says, Between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The kingdom of God, Miroslav Volf says it this way, the kingdom of God comes through the blood of the Son of God. The kingdom of God, the original intent, the original purpose that God created for us, for him to reign through his people in his place. The kingdom of God finally comes by the very blood of the Son of God. And the lamb was standing as though it had been slain. You can still see the scars. You can still see the cost. And yet this is the beauty of what God does with the cross. What's the next quote that I have there, Brian? Do I have the... Yes, okay, great, great. This is just a great summary from this book. The self-giving love of God. Again, he provides the sacrifice. He's the one that did it, and it was enough. Transformed an instrument of death, the cross, into an instrument of life. The cross is the great reversal where exaltation comes through humiliation. Glory is revealed in shame. Victory is accomplished through surrender. And the triumph of the kingdom comes through the suffering of the servant. Because Jesus took our place, this is now 
Go to the next slide. Because of the atonement from God, this is what we can have. This is another list. In the book, he starts to walk through these 20 dimensions of the atonement is what he call it, kind of 20 effects. And as I was, I was making this slide, I was like, man, I should take some time to try to match all these up with, with you know, the other list that he made. And as I was looking at that, they are matched up. Guy's way ahead of me. These match up perfectly with the other list. These are all the things that are true of us because of the atonement. Take a minute just to look at that list and see what jumps out at you as most meaningful because of what Jesus has done. I think for me, removal of shame for sure is one of them. Um, propitiation, that's a super fancy word for meaning that, basically meaning enough that the price has been paid. And one way that I think about this, um, the, the organization that I work for, like I mentioned, Athletes in Action, we run a camp um, in the summer called the Ultimate Training Camp, kind of a body, mind, and, and soul thing. And I, I attended it when I was playing college sports way back in the day now. And um, this camp, the one that I went to was out in Colorado where they teach through these handful of different biblical principles to try to apply in sport. Not necessarily like, hey, how do you quote a Bible verse, running down the field or the track or whatever. Like, but how does, how does the gospel inform winning and losing? How does the gospel inform uh, my motivation? How does the gospel speak into injuries and trials and all the things that happen in the world of sports? And so at the end, at the end of this week, after all this teaching and some, some lighter competition, um, we do something called the special. It's a 20-hour sports marathon that stands for scriptural principles plus exhaustion equals confidence in Almighty Lord. Special. 20 hour sports marathon. And if you're keeping track, yes, I work for this organization now, and it's my joy and delight to put people through this 20 hour sports marathon. Mainly because of what happened when I did it. Uh, at the end of this thing, uh, again, we're in Colorado, so there's like legit mountains, and they've been reading the story of the passion all through this, all night, all of the morning. It's about noon on a Friday. Right, which mirrors the time that Jesus was on the cross. And um, the last part of this was a, was a relay. It wasn't so much a race as now it's just kind of to do, to do business with God. And we, we ran down about a half mile down this road that was on the side of a mountain and carrying a two-by-four in our, in our hand. And when we get to the bottom, uh, we're instructed to put it up on our shoulders and put our hands over it and run back up the mountain as if we're running up the hill like the hill that Jesus died on, not in Colorado, over, over outside of Jerusalem. And we run up, and, and, and the sun was out, and so the shadow of the cross is cast out in front of us just based on the angle of the sun. And, and now it's just like just doing business with God. And I'm running, and like the whole, the whole part of the whole point of being an athlete is like not ever giving up in anything. And like I had never stopped in a competition or anything like that. And this is the last five minutes of a 20-hour marathon. Like I'm exhausted. I'm totally wiped. But, like, I'm not going to stop. Like, that's how I'm going to worship God, through, with my effort. You know, I don't have to win. I'm just going to. And, man, I had to stop, like, five or six times on the way up that mountain. I, like, sat down on the guardrail once, just so, so tired. And I felt so much shame because it was like I couldn't even finish this thing for God. And it had nothing to do with the athletic accomplishments. Like, it was everything else in my life of just feeling like I had never quite done enough. Is God angry with me or not? How much more do I have to give? And so I finished the race 
and go sit down, uh, and it's overlooking this beautiful river and reservoir. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I'm just sitting there just feeling all sorts of that first list, condemnation and all this stuff. And this one of the staff guys comes over to me. I, I hadn't met him earlier in the week. I'd seen him around, but we hadn't talked. And he just put his hand on my shoulder. I assume he's probably praying. And then he gets up, and he just says, hey, man, God's proud of you. And my first initial thought was like, yeah, right, dude, you don't know what happened down there. Like, I totally failed. I couldn't, I, I couldn't finish. I had to stop. And then it hit me that the atonement, I didn't actually think of that word right then in that moment, but it hit me like God is proud of me, not because of anything that I've done, not because of any sacrifice that I made, not because of any good works or not, but just because of what Jesus did. I couldn't finish the race, but Jesus did. In fact, it is finished, period. Like, that's the end of it. And so this removal of shame experience, explodes in my heart, and I recognize that God is proud of me, period. Not proud of blank what I've done, not proud of this, not proud of what I haven't done. Like, just proud of me. That's what the atonement offers, and that's a done deal. It's over. This is what we get to walk away with. This is the end of the story. What if we viewed God as really not angry with us, as really satisfied, as really saying it is enough because it is enough? And yet, we do live in this world still. There are still times that I don't know if, that I struggle to believe that. Last one, Revelation 22, literally the last chapter of the Bible. We live in this already, but not yet. These things are already true of us, and yet we don't fully live them out. Gen Revelation 22, page 1041 in those Bibles this is a scene of heaven at the end. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, hearkening back to the garden with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. We can eat any of them. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and the servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The beginning will re-happen again at the end. And yet that is the future, but we're not there yet. And so we have to still live in this broken down house of a life. And yet Jesus told his disciples the night before he died that he was going to prepare a place for us. He was going to prepare a house for us for us in the heavenly kingdom. He actually uses the word mansion, which is really cool, um, except it's not so much a mansion as that word meant like an apartment, uh, like a mother-in-law suite. Uh, like literally that's what that word means, that he's gonna go and build us all a whole bunch of apartments that are gonna be on attached to his father's house, and yet that'll probably be kind of like a mansion. And yet the point isn't even that we'll get to live in these sweet homes, but that we'll be with the one who takes the place of the sun. We don't even need a light of lamp and we'll get to reign forever and ever. And so he's getting this place ready, whatever label you want to put on it, doesn't matter. He's getting this place ready so that we can finally again be at one with God. That's our end game. That's where we get to go and live forever and ever. And so right now, we might as well practice living like that. It's already been accomplished. It's already been guaranteed. Everything we could ever need has already either been accomplished or it's guaranteed that we'll still get it one day. The contract has already been signed, if you will, for this house that we'll get to live in. The closing date is coming. We better get ready here and now in the way that we live. These are what these five things are about. The atonement speaks into all of this. This is why we just journey through the whole Bible, because this is the whole Bible. 
right? Gospel-centered. How does that play out? Well, I hope you see that. Jesus died for our sins. On the, that's the crux of the gospel. That's the atonement. Thoughtfully engaged, uh, atoning for our sins, looking at the rest of the world and that they don't have the answers. How does that inform the way we engage with, well, we have hope that we can extend, hope of the gospel. What's next? Life in multi-ethnic community. That's what it's going to look like in heaven, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like, we better start practicing and living that way now, seeking justice and mercy. Seeking there to be made right, the things that have been made wrong. We don't just wait till we get to heaven. Sure, we don't want to just make this world a better place for people to still be separated from God from for all eternity, but we don't want to let this place still be a garbage dump. Jesus said, pray that heaven would come to earth here and now as it one day will. And then the last one, joy and generosity and mission. I mean, goodness gracious, was God not generous with us? Did he not give us this gift of grace? And so what are just a couple of practical ways? I meant to say the, the last slide that I showed, that was kind of the orthopathy, how it should change, what it changes about us. Orthopraxy, just a couple of things. One, fascinating study, I would encourage you in, to, to spend some time just with God and just study the word blood in the New Testament. In the English language, the word blood in the New Testament. You're kind of like, really? I hope you see why I'm telling you to do that. Um, the word blood in the New Testament and all the things that are, I mean, most of that list there, it, it'll say, we have been justified by his blood. We have been redeemed by his blood. There's just a ton of them. Search the word blood in the English and in the New Testament and just be amazed with all of the things that are really dependent upon that sacrifice. Secondly, again, oneness, unity, Life in multi-ethnic community, to use our language, right? Practicing this heavenly kind of worship. This is why we sing in different languages here. What does it look like to seek justice and mercy together? You heard about Elijah's promise. Those are just a couple of things. And then lastly, the band can come up as we, we look at communion. I mean, is there no better, like, layup for communion um, than this whole thing, right? Where Jesus, on the night that he was crucified, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you, part of the sacrifice he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is the blood of a new covenant, a blood that will actually pay for and atone. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, but it is very possible and sufficient that the blood of Jesus would take away sins, the capital L, Lamb of God. And he passed those around as, a, as, a, as an institution of a new covenant, a new promise, a new relationship that we could get back to one day at the end, what we threw away at the beginning. And so now we come to this table as a way to remember that, as a way to orthopraxy, actually live that out and to receive that atonement. What from that first list do you really need atonement for? And what from that second list, how does Jesus actually accomplish that? That's what I would encourage you to just consider for a few moments before you come forward. We've got three tables up here. The one in the middle is the allergy-friendly, gluten-free option. On the sides, there's bread. And then there's wine and juice you take, rip and dip, um, this is a table for followers of, of Jesus who have actually been atoned for already to just serve as a reminder. And yet if you are still in that first list, so to speak, if you're still on that other side of the bridge, would you meet Jesus? Would you let him come and bring you over to the other side to atone for your sins once and for all? That's a done deal. There no longer needs to be any sacrifice because Jesus has atoned for us. Let me pray for us and then you can come when you're ready. Jesus, uh, I just, there's so much, there's so much. I, yeah, in some ways don't even know what to say other than just thank you, God. We worship you that you would pay, you would pay the cost. We don't have to scramble around wondering, am I paying enough? Am I doing enough? Jesus, you have already, you have paid it all. You have 
given your life for us, and it is only by your blood that we now live. So would you remind us of that? Sure, here in this moment, but would you remind us tomorrow? Would you remind us next week? Would you remind us next month? Would you remind us in the times we most need to be reminded? And for those who might not even yet be a part of your family, would today perhaps be the day where someone would say, yeah, I get it. Jesus, I want your death to count for mine. Thanks, God, that you would be a self-giving God. Meet us now in Jesus' name. Amen.